Well, good morning, New Life Church. My name is Eric. I'm glad to be with you. Take your Bibles, turn them to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to continue hearing about Jesus and his ministry and his um, proclaiming he's a king and what that king does in the world. Bodies. Checking around. Yep, we all have one. It's good. And if you're like me, you've all experienced being disappointed by your body, right? We've all been embarrassed by them. I'm assuming we all remembered to brush our teeth this morning, right? People scrambling for gum. We've been embarrassed, or maybe that disappointment is bigger than just an embarrassment. Maybe your body has broken down in some way And it is not allowing you to do the things you know you should be able to do. The muscle doesn't work quite right. The heart is not as effective as it should be or once was. Or perhaps it's even more than that. You feel your body has betrayed you. That it does not interact with you as it should. It is actively working against you. It doesn't seem to be on your side and that is suffering described, real suffering. From the everyday hurdles to the long-term suffering, our bodies let us down. And friends, that is all evidence that we live an embodied existence in a broken world. We're really good talking about souls. We've sung a bunch about our souls, but the truth is we are embodied people, designed to be embodied people, but they let us down And that's proof we live in a broken world. But the world did not start broken, right? God made the world, planted a beautiful garden, and put man and woman in that garden unblemished, unbroken, unstained, and all was good. In fact, the Bible says it was very good. Those bodies were in right relationship with creation. Those bodies were in right relationship with each other, right relationship with with God, and everything was very good. But you know the story, the story of those bodies taking an action that brought the curse to all creation. It brought brokenness to their bodies and to our bodies, and now we all know we live in the brokenness. Things are not as they ought to be. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 18, and we're going to continue to read about Jesus and his ministry and the beautiful truth that the touch of Jesus makes daughters of the distance and brings life to death. Let's read. In verse 18, it says, while he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him saying, my daughter has just died. But come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And if you recall where we are in the story from last week, Jesus is sitting at Matthew's house. He called Matthew to be a disciple, and Matthew throws a party, and they go and they eat and they feast, and there's a dinner party, and it's wonderful, and he's eating with tax collectors and sinners And the Pharisees show up and they're asking him questions and the disciples of John show up and are asking him questions and it all amounted to, why are you doing differently than we would expect? And if you recall, Jesus gave some answers because Jesus 
is unexpected and far exceeds our expectations. And as he's having this dialogue with these people and trying to eat his food between questions, a ruler comes up. I think this town was probably small enough that it is obvious that people in the town knew something's going on at Matthew's house. That Jesus guy is over there, and this ruler has probably heard about him. This ruler has likely heard that Jesus has healed the paralytics. Jesus has healed the lepers. Jesus has cast out demons. Jesus has cooled fevers. It seems that no ailment has stood in the way of his healing touch. Where Jesus meets the curse, Jesus wins, right? This ruler could have been maybe a leader in the town or an important member of the synagogue, but he has some amount of known authority in this town. And he comes to Jesus and he kneels. A humble posture a worshipful posture, one perhaps unexpected from a ruler to the guy hanging out with the sinners. He kneels and he says to Jesus, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. I have little ones at home and I can't begin to wrap my mind around the state of mind this guy is in right now. His little one, his daughter, is sick, and he's going to try to figure out how to help her, make sure she has the food and the water and the rest that she needs. And then his daughter becomes very sick, and anxiety increases, and fear increases. He would be attending to her and caring for her, bringing her everything to make her comfortable. She becomes so sick, he's probably weeping between interacting with her, and then The sickness wins. The curse overcomes the child. This is not how it's supposed to be. Papas are not supposed to bury babies. And he's sitting there and remembers Jesus, the guy that has healed maladies and sickness. So he goes running and he finds Jesus at Matthew's house and kneels saying, she has just died, but if you come, that can all change. This is astounding. First, it is astounding in the certainty of the request. It's impossible for us to know. There's no stage notes for Matthew. It's impossible to know the tone, but I don't see any wavering in this request. There's no hedging. He doesn't say, if it's possible, could you? Perhaps maybe you can, if you can do this, there is a matter-of-fact description of reality, a simple request, lay your hand on my daughter. Secondly, this ruler has a realistic understanding of the power of Jesus. I don't know if other people have made the mental leap, but this ruler did. He heard or observed what Jesus did when faced with sickness, what Jesus did when faced with disease, what Jesus did when faced with all the multivaried results of the fall, all the ways the fall, the curse on humanity, the stain of sin since the beginning has twisted and broken our bodies. We have sickness because of the fall. We have sick days because of the fall. We have chronic diseases 
and colds and flus and cancer because of the fall. Hearts and kidneys and livers fail because of the fall. Our skin has rashes or leprosy because of the fall. Limbs don't work and numbness is in bodies because of the fall. Our joints are in pain and our backs go out because of the fall. Paul says all creation is groaning. All creation is bent and twisted because sin was injected into it by our first mother and father. And ever since, we have known sickness. We have known hurt. We have known loss. The ruler knows this. But every time Jesus comes up against the curse, he seems to win. And he remembers what he has heard. Paralysis, cured. Leprosy, cured. Sickness, fever, cured. And he takes the leap. Death? And this ruler sits at the intersection point with his daughter, another one to have lost the battle against the curse. And he runs to Jesus. The one who has won the battle with the curse, the battle his daughter has just lost. There is certainty, there is an understanding, and there is a surprising boldness to his request. My daughter is dead, but if you just lay your hand on her, she will live. There's a simplicity there, of course, but there is also a request to accept a cost. In Jewish culture, informed by the Old Testament, If you touched a dead body, you were unclean. And most of the time, that uncleanness meant you could not worship at the temple until you had gone through a time of cleaning and distance. It is though the ruler understands something fundamentally different about Jesus. Jesus, you need to come up against the curse. You need to touch death because if you touch death, it will be different. Where others touch death, they are unclean. But if you touch death, you will reverse the curse and she will live. This is quite the way to interrupt the dinner party, isn't it? I can picture the silence of the room. The the ruler comes in. Everyone looking at the ruler, shocked and saddened with his news and hearing his request and they turn their heads to Jesus. What will he do? And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. No commentary, just simple. He's following the ruler and his disciples are coming. Let's let's go, right? We're going to follow Jesus. What's he going to do? And as they are going to the ruler's house, verse 20, and behold, A woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. So this crowd is heading to the ruler's house and behold, and we know what that is, right? Watch out, check this. Something astounding is about to happen. A woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood comes up to the crowd and touches just the fringe of of his garment. And this woman is probably in a similar boat to the ruler. She has heard what has been happening. She has heard about this Jesus, and every time he comes up to the brokenness, he makes better. When faced with malfunction, he mends. 
Where there is suffering, he is a savior. And in the news of this work, she hears hope. She has a medical sickness. Her body is not working as it should. She needs healing and help and hope. This woman, is, this woman is looking for remedy and relief, and this Jesus is clearly the answer for her. And now this Jesus is in the crowd that's going to the ruler's house. And she says, this is my chance. If I can just get close enough to Jesus, she is confident she will be made well. But there is more here. We talked a little bit about ritual cleanness in regards to dead bodies, but the Old Testament, that's the very large chunk of Bible in your Bible, talks a lot about ritual cleanness. If you were to turn to Leviticus 15, and I wouldn't recommend it, you don't have to, uh, I, I can just tell you about it, you would read about a lot of interesting laws. The header of Leviticus 15 says, laws for bodily discharges. You weren't ready for this, were you, coming into church this morning? And it goes through in painstaking detail what should be the response to various discharges. If you have a wound and it is still open and there's infection or pus, then you are unclean until that is healed and then you wash yourself and you wait seven days and then you will be clean. It goes on like this for a whole chapter. Because often when there is a discharge from the body, it is a notification that the body is not working as it ought to. Picture something as simple as a runny nose. In a small way, that discharge is telling you, my body is broken, and it is evidenced by this discharge. When the body is not functioning, there were set markers to observe, to stay away from others, then to wash yourself, and when seven days had passed, you were clean. Some of this was just a practical means of keeping infection and uncleanness from spreading. Remember we used to spray, spray the pews between services? In fact, it is so detailed that it describes if you as an unclean person touch a dish or sit on a chair and then someone else touches that chair or touches that dish, that other person is unclean until they wash. They need to wash their hands and wait a day. This might be the earliest recommendation for hand washing in the history of the world. I'm not really sure. Now, to be unclean in this context is not to be ostracized. We talked about the lepers before. They had to live outside the community. They had to call out when they were coming near, beware, leper. It's not that. But it did affect your ability to worship with the temple practices, with the gathered community. If someone was unclean, they could not participate. And if someone was unclean, they needed to make sure to stay distant from someone who was clean, who was planning to worship. If you were to read through Leviticus 15, it would be obvious that it is very easy to become unclean. And in this culture, there would be a constant awareness of your clean status, especially if you were planning to participate in the temple. God was establishing a clean worship to make their worship, this people of God worship, distinct from the rest of the world and the world's broken worship of false gods. In a very tangible way, this posture was describing that bodies are broken by sin, and we want to show by the very way that we worship that sin and brokenness ought not be. The way the world should work is unbroken bodies living in harmony with God and each other, just like the garden. But alas, it is not so. 
And we know that. Our awareness is different now because we don't have the ritual aspects, but we still go to great lengths to be clean, right? You people take showers, right? Yeah, don't, don't read. Who has deodorant on? I'm just kidding. Don't raise your hands. We cover up. We avoid contact when we are sick. We are still aware that our bodies do not function as they should. And even in regards to the gathering, the gathering for worship, there are still part of the same habits. What are some of the nursery rules? If your kid has green snot, they can't be in the nursery. That discharge makes him unclean. Kids are constantly unclean. I have four boys at my home. I don't know that we're going to be ceremonial clean until high school, probably after high school, right? One of the pastors, after studying Leviticus for 15 for what he said was too long, he remarked, bodies are gross. And I would add, bodies are broken. They are not functioning as they should because of the curse. And they make it often impossible to participate in the clean worship described in Leviticus. A worship that was designed to point to a God that was clean and unmarred by the brokenness of the curse. Look at Leviticus 15 mentions discharges even of the reproduction system. There's a summary at the end of the chapter, chapter, starting in verse 32. It says, This is the law for him who has a discharge, and for him who has an emission of semen, becoming unclean thereby. Also for her who is unwell with her menstrual impurity. That is for anyone, male or female, who has a discharge, and for the man who lies with a woman who is unclean. Prior to this in the chapter, it describes a seven-day time of uncleanness for a menstrual cycle. And it also says that if a woman is bleeding for many days beyond that normal cycle, then as long as she is bleeding, she is stuck in the state of being unclean. In verse 25, it says, If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, and if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity all the days of the discharge, she shall continue in uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. This is the state of this dear woman, the state she has sat in for 12 years. She's not able to worship like she would want to for 12 years. Not able to gather with the community and sing the songs and eat the food when they are worshiping for 12 years hyper-aware of her cleanliness status because it may affect someone else's ability to attend for 12 years. This is social distance for 12 years. Do you have compassion on this woman? It's heartbreaking. It would be so easy for her to think, my body has betrayed me. From no fault of my own, I can't worship God the way I want. I can't worship God the way He wants me to. And her situation is twofold. She has a medical affliction, and it keeps her from full participation in her community. But she heard about Jesus. There is something about this Jesus. If I can just touch Him... Because where Jesus meets the curse, Jesus wins. 
Jesus keeps winning. But remember, in this moment, all those cleanliness protocols are in her head. If someone sits where I have sat, they are unclean. If someone touches the dish I have touched or the countertop I have touched, they are unclean. She is trying to be very careful, thinking to herself, I have to get close. If I just, if I just touch the fringe of the garment, just a little bit of touch, then I will be made well. And I think one of the most beautiful portions of this story is that for 12 years, she has been unqualified because of her body, because it has betrayed her. 12 years, she couldn't worship God with the gathered community at the temple. She has been distanced and disqualified, but she still, after 12 years, turns to God for remedy. She's still straining to figure out, how can I touch God? 12 years is a long time. I know my broken heart would be bitter in a far shorter amount of time. Would yours? Twelve years of distance. Twelve years of not worshiping the way she wants to. Twelve years of suffering. But still, she is placing her hope in the Messiah, in King Jesus. What a beautiful picture in a hard and vulnerable situation. And here, in the vulnerability, she reaches and touches the fringe of Jesus' garment. And as she touches the fringe, Jesus turned. And seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly, the woman was made well. That is so good. I don't know that the woman even expected to get his attention or even needed his attention. If she could just touch the cloak, but Jesus stops and turns, you can almost feel the pounding of her heart, the uncertainty in her mind, oh no, what will he say? Why did you touch me? Or maybe he knows and it will be, now I'm unclean. No, it is none of those. She is met with compassion. Take heart, daughter. Be encouraged, daughter. Be enheartened, dear one. May your heart be full of courage and confidence, daughter. You who have been distanced have come close and are daughter. To have been distanced by the language of ritual for so long and to be greeted with the language of family, that's good. That's Jesus. Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. You have placed your confidence in the correct person. You have placed your hope correctly, and your running to Jesus has made you well. And instantly, from that moment, the woman was made well. I'm sure she could even feel it in her body at that moment. It had been made unbroken. Her body no longer betraying her. Her body met Jesus, and where he is, the curse loses. That's so good. That's so good. This this moment of redemption, this moment of healing on the way to the ruler's house. We're not even there, right? Jesus is not even at the ruler's house to see the daughter, and he met a daughter on the way to the daughter. It's lovely. He keeps going to the the ruler's house. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion. They arrive at the house, the ruler's house, and a crowd is making a commotion. These flute players are the ones that were there to accompany with the proper music for the proper mourning to be done because the daughter had died. 
You hire the flute players. That's the proper thing to do. They know the dirges to play, the, the laments to accompany, the mourning. The crowd is likely the mourners. They know their role. They are there to mourn the death of a daughter. They will wail and weep because the presence of death is here. They know the rhythms of the curse, and they are responding as they have always responded when another one loses her battle with the curse. This is not the first time death has arrived in the town. All of them know what to do in the tragic rehearsal of death, but Jesus just walked up, and where he meets the curse, well, we'll find out. Jesus, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Jesus comes up, and as though Jesus is saying, no, let's disrupt the rhythms of death. Let's stop the dance with the curse. You don't need to engage your typical responses. Death to me is as someone sleeping, where the curse and I battle I win. And they laughed at him. And I get it. We would laugh at him. They know death. We know death. They have observed death. How many people before this had died? All of them. We have gotten very comfortable with death. We assume it is just a natural part of life. We say that. Death is a natural part of life. That sentence doesn't make any sense. Death is incompatible with life. Death is an unwelcome interruption to life. Life is the good creation and death is the perversion. God made all things good and there was life. We brought the curse that tainted it with death. Sin and rebellion brought the curse that twisted life, so there is death. And it has been happening for so long that we think it is natural. It is the most unnatural thing in all creation. It is evidence of brokenness. It is evidence of a curse. It is a witness to the reality that creation has been marred. It is a marker that says things are not as they should be. And the laughter is evidence that we have forgotten that. That we have been lulled into complacency in our response to death. That our hearts have forgotten that it should not be this way. When the king shows up and says, death is no hindrance to me, it should beckon our imagination to a time when death was not the sovereign ruler we think him to be. When the king meets the curse... When the king meets death. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went out through all that district. He puts the crowd away. The king puts the crowd away and does the simple thing. He takes the little dead girl by the hand. Because death is no thing to him. The uncleanness is no thing to him. Jesus is so clean, so unstained that where he goes, the curse is beat back. The unclean is made clean. He takes her by the hand and the girl arose. Yes! 
This news is glorious. This is your king. He just pushed back death and he hardly exerted himself. The touch of Jesus is that powerful. The touch of Jesus brings life to daughters. The touch of Jesus makes daughters. This is good news, friends. We follow a God who can make things whole, who can stop the bleeding, who can make things clean, who can bring to life. Where Jesus is, sickness loses. Death loses. Where Jesus meets the curse, Jesus wins. Where Jesus meets death, Jesus wins. And then the understatement of the century, and the report of this went through all the district. You think? The report of this came all the way to Westland, Oregon. The king of life took a little dead girl by the hand and she was no longer dead. The king of life trounced death with a touch. The king of life meets the curse and wins. The king of life stops the bleeding and the suffering. The king of life is unafraid to give his touch to all the things that we would avoid. The king of life injected himself into this mess of a broken world and walked among us. Not put off, not repulsed, but repairing. Not ashamed of us, but saving. He walked with us and makes us family. Friends, these are the true accounts of the king walking amongst the curse-ridden bodies with which we are so familiar, and he came to redeem them. He came to save them. The king of life walked his body all the way to the cross and said, give me the wounds that make you unclean. Spill the blood that makes you distant. Bring the death that you would all avoid, and I will fully embrace it all. I will take on all the brokenness. The king of life took on the wounds and used them to make us clean. He shed the blood that makes us whole. He died a horrendous death on a cross, giving death for a moment the thought that death had won. That the curse was complete, that God's good creation would forever be marred and irredeemable. But where Jesus takes on brokenness, where Jesus meets the curse, where Jesus meets death, Jesus wins. Our King Jesus rose again, proclaiming with certainty death is no match for Jesus. Death ought not be, and one day Jesus will make it forever so. He has defeated it by a touch and by his life. Sickness shall not be, and he has made it so by his touch and by his life. Friends, trust in this Jesus if you are distanced. Trust in this Jesus if you are suffering. Trust in this Jesus if you fear death. Trust in this Jesus if you feel your body has betrayed you. Trust in this Jesus if you are so beaten down by the curse and all its ramifications. Trust the one who is willing and able to touch brokenness, to make daughters, to banish death.
Let's pray. Lord, what a story. Press its truth into our hearts. This story is big enough to hold our hope because it is the story of Jesus and what he has done. And it is but a foreshadowing of what he will do comprehensively. Give everyone in this room a trust in Jesus. Allow them to hope in Jesus and encourage their hearts. Lord, I pray for the daughters in this room, those who are hurt, who are suffering, who feel their bodies have betrayed them, who have a trace of hope that if they can just touch Jesus, they will be made well. Make them well and encourage their hearts and make their hearts know that you call them daughter. In Jesus' name, amen.